Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of Hash It Out. My name is Deborah, and today I am joined by my fellow co-hosts Janae and Chelsea. Today's topic will be immigration and we'll dive right into it by talking about why people emigrate. So one of the main reasons why people come to the U.S. is to escape violent home countries. According to Statista.com, Latin America has been labeled the murder capital of the world and is considered one of the most violent regions around the globe. Since the 1980s, most Latin American and Caribbean countries have faced a challenging scenario of recurring economic crisis and social inequality. Latin America is home to about 8% of the world's population, but has about one-third of its homicides. In 2016, that meant some 400 homicides a day, or roughly 146,000 a year. The Northern Triangle countries, or Guatemala, El Salvador, y um, Honduras, have some of the world's highest homicide rates. Many teenagers in these countries face a join-or-die ultimatum from gangs, so their parents often hire smugglers to get them to the United States. I think it's a good thing to point out, Deborah, why people immigrate to the United States. I think it's something that isn't talked about much. It's always about um, doing it the legal way and things of that nature. But I think that we should all try to look at it from their perspective. If you had a child that was constantly in danger, wouldn't you want better for them? So definitely a good topic to bring up. Yeah, and that's kind of something that we wanted to focus on in this episode, too, is the, the fact that when we talk about immigration, a lot of it goes to what's happening at the border or what happens once they're here or policies and numbers and um like statuses but it's rare when the news stops and kind of like reflects on well why are they here and that's um another thing that we're gonna touch on later is this idea where instead of addressing the root problem the root cause of why people are immigrating they're addressing the people who are here and they're just turning them away and they're it's like the approach is very selfish it's like we don't want you here but instead of just kicking them out why don't you find ways to stop them from coming by improving their home countries and investing in those countries so that these people aren't coming over here and having to suffer even more than they already do basically i guess what i'm saying is that these countries has a rich culture a rich people and the majority of the times these people don't want to leave their countries because you know that that is their homes but they don't feel like they have an option so they make the dangerous journey to the u.s and then they're just kicked out and like i said instead of addressing the root cause of the problem which we're gonna kind of go into what those different ones are later in the episode they kind of just um i guess criminalize them So moving on, I also want to talk about one of the reasons why people come over, which is refugees from natural disasters. And there are several examples of these, um, of these situations where people come and they're um, fleeing their country because, you know, there were natural disasters and they lost their homes, etc. But I want to talk about recently the Central American countries of Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala. They suffered a series of hurricanes this um this in the past November, um, Hurricane Eta and Iota just two weeks apart. This was in early November, so the news was heavily overshadowed by the election. So it's not something that a lot of people heard about unless, you know, they had family in those areas. So according to BBC News, in Honduras, official figures suggest that more than 150,000 people 
have been left homeless due to the damage caused by the two storms. And these were two, you know, category four hurricanes. And entire families were camping out wherever they can. And it that includes, even if it means sleeping, like on the side of like a street or a roadway. And many are developing health problems, ranging from simple colds to skin rashes and gastrointestinal problems. And according to the health ministry in the Cortes region, Some people are refusing to be tested for COVID for fear of being stigmatized if they test positive and being pushed out of the shelters where they sought refuge. And for many in Honduras, the impact caused by the storms will just push them from poverty into extreme poverty. I agree 100%, Deborah, that during November, this definitely wasn't covered because I did hear about the first hurricane but I definitely did not hear about the second. And it's so crazy that they were two weeks apart and no one has even, well, I'm assuming definitely not the United States has even offered help or asylum to all those people who are homeless. I personally, I'm Honduran, so I remember that when this was going on, I would watch a lot of YouTube videos and news and stuff like that about the hurricanes, and my dad was constantly in contact with his family. My mom was constantly in contact with my brother and sister, although, I mean, she always is. But um, there was just, like, a lot of stress in my family around that time because, you know, this is happening in our home country. And... I remember seeing the devastating videos of entire houses just being thrown into the river. This Because, like, not only the hurricanes, the high winds, the rain, and all that, it's the fact that afterwards you have these surging currents of water that just take and erode everything away. And I was seeing these videos of people trapped in cars. There was this one video of someone who took a truck and was trying to drive it through the flood, and they had the child in there, and you could see the child drowning. And it was really upsetting to see. And it wasn't just happening in one region. It was all over the place. You saw people trying to dig out their belongings. It, it's already devastating because there's like, um, like the article in BBC News said, they were already in poverty and it just pushed them into more extreme poverty. Honduras being my kind of like my home country. And so I, I honestly was a little ticked because I'm like, this is happening and it seems like no one cares. And it's not even just like it was one category for hurricane where like those have gotten like news in the past that has been headline news before. But this was two of them back to back. And it affected not just one country, but but, you know, multiple countries. And again, it just seemed like nobody really cared. But that is just one example of reasons why people leave their homes. Because there are cases where you have these natural disasters and people who are already struggling. It just makes an already bad situation worse. And so that just kind of serves as extra additional motivation for them to want to leave. And that kind of brings us to our next point, which is extreme poverty as a motive. So... According to a statement from the Department of Homeland Security Secretary on March 16th of this year, poverty, high levels of violence and corruption in Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries have propelled migration to our southwest border for years. The adverse conditions have continued to deteriorate. Two damaging hurricanes that Deborah mentioned had hit Honduras and swept through the region and made the living conditions there even worse, causing more children and families to flee. This was also on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has made the situation a lot more complicated. There are restrictions and protocols that need to be followed. The physical distancing protocol, for example, imposes space and other limitations on our facilities and operations. 
They continue to state that the prior administration completely dismantled the asylum system. The system was gutted, facilities were closed, and they cruelly expelled young children into the hands of traffickers, and that they have had to rebuild the entire system, including the policies and procedures required to administer the asylum laws that Congress passed long ago. I'll just say that um, it's really hard to imagine that this is all happening on top of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like, I can't imagine two hurricanes, two weeks apart, back to back, and then on top of that, a COVID-19 pandemic. Like, it's ridiculous that it's not being covered and no one is really helping. And like you said, the asylum, um, the asylum system was practically dismantled. So, I mean, what else can people do besides to smuggle themselves over here? Yeah, and the thing is, it's not even just the hurricane. It's not even just the pandemic. It's the, um, I guess, the pre-existing conditions of the country prior to all of those things. These countries already, before the pandemic, they had corrupt governments. They had um, high rates of organized crime. Like we mentioned earlier, they were very violent regions and have high homicide rates. So this is all on top of that. And I kind of want to dive into that corrupt government piece a little bit more. So corruption hobbles Central America's institutions, meaning that families, they can't rely on honest police officers to protect them, healthcare or school systems to meet minimum standards of care, or elected officials to act in the people's interest. A recent study by the Woodrow Wilson Center found that the main impediment to sustained economic growth and improved security in the Northern Triangle is the deep structural challenges related to poor governance and corruption. So not only are these countries already, you know, struggling, but they also but they also have policing systems that don't care about them. They have government officials who are selfish and corrupt. Not only are these people being oppressed by corrupt governments and legal systems, but they are also not given the best opportunities that they can to succeed. So like Deborah said earlier, we're going to go a little bit more in depth of the organized crime. There are a wide number of organized crime groups ranging from cartels, prison gangs, street gangs, transnational gangs, and the like in Mexico and Central America, all the way through to paramilitary, narco militia, mafia, and gambling rackets, plus many more. Yeah, and another thing about the organized crime groups is I kind of want to go back to something that we said at the beginning, where in countries such as Honduras, teenagers are often pressured by this join or die thing with gangs so the recruitment process that these gangs have is very very much either you join us or you get killed and a lot of the times these families that are coming over they either got on the bad side of a gang somehow they have a maybe a teenager who was already getting kind of like catching the eye of some recruiters or you know they were they were threatened out of their spot Sometimes they f escape because a gang member already killed one of their family members and told them that they're next. So there's um, a lot of ways in which organized crime terrorizes these people that, that puts this fear in them that if I don't leave, I am going to die. Or if I don't leave, my children are going to die. Or even if I don't leave, my parents are going to die. So there's just that that fear that they instill in people that I need to get away or you know bad things are going to happen. Yeah, Deborah, that's that's actually really awful. And once again, I just want people to look at it from their perspective. Like what would you do if your child was in 
harm's way and these things were happening to you, wouldn't you want to seek asylum? So, but yeah, I just wish that more people would look at it from their perspective of why they're coming here, just like you said. And I think it's a good thing that we brought this up because it's always talked about, just like you said earlier, what happens at the border. But it's never talked about what leads up to people coming to the border. Another motivator, apart from like all of the the other things we've mentioned, is just wanting to come to the U.S. because they want a better life for their family. They want more money. They want more opportunities. Before the pandemic, for example, my sister, who lives in Honduras, she was earning $10 a week. And that were the living wages she had to have for her, her husband, and three kids living on $10 a week. Which, if it weren't for the fact that on our end here in the U.S., we were working and we were sending her money, they probably would have starved to death. And that's just, again, that's just my family story. There are so many more tragic stories out there. And kind of drive for people to want to better themselves, to have more opportunities, to never have to worry about where their next meal is coming from or whether or not they can make um, the payments that they need to make, whether or not they'll be able to feed their child. That's one of the driving factors for why people make the dangerous journey, which kind of brings us into like the next kind of overreaching topic, which kind of getting away from why do they come here, kind of focusing on what are they risking and what are they sacrificing to come here? Because yes, there's so many factors driving them out, but at the same time, the process of leaving and oftentimes I feel like the media portrays them as leeches where they're just coming here to take all our jobs. They they should just stay in their countries. They have no reason to come here. Well, we just went over a whole list of reasons why they come here. But again, there's that money, those opportunities that they want something better. And as we were doing research for this episode, I actually read in one article that Growing up in these countries, there's always this. So there's always this idea of the United States. It's the land of opportunity. It's the American dream. There's all these misconceptions about what the U.S. is like. To them, it's some sort of like utopia, where everything is better, everything is dandy, where um, no one lives the way they live. And we know, living in the United States, that that's not true. The U.S. has a lot of issues, a lot of problems. It also has its fair share of corruption and poverty and so much discrimination, race, so many issues, right? It's a misfit. But in these countries, it is very idealized. It's kind of portrayed like the way I think of it. The United States is kind of like the Emerald City from the Wizard of Oz. But, you know, like I said, it's not. But... People grow up thinking that, and they're like, if I could just get there, everything will be different. You know, it's kind of like how we say, if I could win the lottery, all my problems would go away. Well, money doesn't solve everything, but, you know, it's nice to dream. But for them, they actually, like, work to get here. So let's go ahead and kind of, like, before I go any further, I feel like I'm kind of jumping ahead. Let's go ahead and move on to what are they risking and sacrificing by coming here? As Deborah was saying, I'll go a little bit more in depth, but to put it simply, they're always risking death during travel by either starvation, dehydration, or drowning. Much of northern Mexico and its borders are controlled by organized crime groups that force migrants to pay them before allowing them to cross into their territory. Sometimes migrants are kidnapped to extort money from their relatives in the U.S., and those who don't pay up may be killed. According to Todd Bensom, senior national security fellow for the Center of Immigration Studies says that it's a dangerous trip 
It's very well known that local police forces and even state police are working very closely all the time with cartels and human smuggling for sure. Yeah, and one thing that actually occurred to me when you were talking about how some migrants are kidnapped and um, extorted for money from the relatives in the U.S., I also kind of want to mention that when people are deported and people in Central America, when they get back, first of all, oftentimes when they're deported, that you don't know how long they were here. Sometimes they were here for whole years, had their whole lives established, and they were sent back, and they don't even have a home there anymore. But when they do come back, there's so many times, so often, do you see cases where because they live in the U.S., people assume they have money. So they will kidnap them and hold them for ransom once they get back, once they're deported. And then it's the same situation where they're, like, contacting your families. Like, you were in the U.S. You know people there. Have them send you money. Have them send us money or you're going to die. So not only is there that risk that when you migrate, you could be kidnapped and held for ransom. But there's also that risk that if you are deported, once you're back in your home country... The exact same thing can happen because, again, there's that whole idealization of the U.S. where everyone is rich and everyone has like it's all white picket fences from here on out. But, you know, it's not. And on that note, I also want to talk about coyotes. So coyotes, these are the men that are getting paid to smuggle migrants across Mexico into the U.S. And they are called coyotes or polleros. And Migrants will pay the coyotes large amounts of cash in order to avoid the authorities and government checkpoints that are spread throughout the south of Mexico. And coyotes are super expensive as well. They're thousands and thousands of dollars. People will save up for years just to hire a coyote that will smuggle them across the border. And while there are like some coyotes that you know do their jobs and nothing else, There are some coyotes who take advantage of the migrants that they are smuggling. So there are instances in which they will rape the woman or they'll rape her and kill her, sometimes even in front of her children if she has them. And there are also some who will sell people to traffickers and keep the money and pocket the money and say that, oh, they died on the way. Because that's another thing with coyotes. There is no guarantee. There's absolutely no guarantee that you won't get caught. There's no guarantee that you won't die of starvation or dehydration or something in the desert. There is no guarantee that you won't drown. There is no guarantee that you won't get shot. There is absolutely no guarantee. It is a huge risk, a huge gamble, and you invest so much money in it. And I'll say it a third time. I really want people to look at it from their perspective. I mean, can you imagine coming over here and you had to go through all that, all that, just to escape like we've already mentioned the several reasons why they had to escape the Honduras the hurricanes the poverty the pandemic the organized crime the elected officials who don't care and then then the journey to even get here like it's just blowing my mind that people don't that they want to turn them away it just doesn't make sense so to me I don't you know what else can you do besides come over here illegally and that kind of leads me to like a whole other topic that is a discussion when we talk about immigration that that wasn't planned for this episode but I'm gonna talk about it anyway um is this whole idea that if they want to come here then they have to do it the legal way the legal way isn't that easy people invest so much money and you know me being a Latina and growing up in communities with a lot of immigrants 
and my my parents being immigrants themselves, I know that the path to residency or even citizenship, it's difficult. It is really hard. For example, my mom, she's been in this country for 27 years. 27 years. And she is just now getting her residency. And it hasn't even arrived yet. And it is a super difficult process. And I know of other immigrant families where they, the interview process is so invasive. They ask you questions about everything. Personal, not personal, everything. They interview not just you, but your family members, employers. Like, it's a whole fucking investigation. It's like you murdered someone. But you're literally just trying to to apply for the right to live in this country. Which is ridiculous. Um, But I just kind of want to put that out there for all the people who say, just do it the legal way. It's not that easy. In fact, it is very, very difficult. It is very expensive, and it is very an invasive process. And I remember growing up, my mom would tell us stories of um, how difficult it was for her coming over, and the how much she suffered with the journey. Um, but she would always finish saying that if she could, if she had the opportunity to do it all over again, she would because being able to provide us with the life she gave us, even though um, we, you know, even though it wasn't a lot, it was all worth it to be able to see you guys well-fed and happy and healthy. And that kind of of brings us to our next topic that I'll let Chelsea talk about a little bit more, which is how they're separating families at the border to deter immigration in order to kind of, you know, prevent that from coming. They're like, hey, if you come here, we're separating you from your family as sort of an incentive or motivation to say, hey, don't come here. And that kind of brings us back to kind of what we mentioned earlier, where instead of instead of addressing the root causes for the immigration, they are just turning people away without a care for what that how that affects them. For example, again, going back to their separating families at the border and you know, even like the children at the border, they're only allowing children to come in. And I'll go ahead and let Chelsea talk a little bit more about that. Thank you, Deborah, for that. Um, just talking about children at the at the border who are separated from their families, I don't think it's uncommon knowledge about the um, harsh immigration policies that were under the Trump administration. Um, and one of the things that I found just reprehensible, disgusting, and just very, very heartbreaking was seeing children locked in cages separated from their parents seeing them in those detention centers simply because their parents and them wanted better lives um i think was the most heartbreaking thing about trump's administration policies um and even now under the biden administration even though you know he hasn't been in office that long um he's done something that kind of goes against everything that he said in his campaign and i want to put this out there that i don't mind talking about my my voting choices um i voted for president biden but here's the thing i voted for him for two reasons one to get the get trump out of office because trump scares me okay and his ability to do anything scares me um but the also thing is i thought i i still believe that biden can redo some of the things that Trump just messed up in our country. Um, but also in voting for Biden, I'm still going to call him out when he does stupid stuff, which brings me to my next point that um, under the Biden administration, they've opened up one of the migrant facilities in um, Texas that 
Trump had opened. And a lot of people were very confused, as was I, about why would you want to open such a place that held, in my opinion, held children captive. Uh, and one of Biden's biggest things during his campaign was that he was going to reverse a lot of the harsh immigration policies that Trump had created. So it was very, very confusing on why he had, um, excuse me, it was very, very confusing on why he had reopened this place. Um, um, in my, just in my personal opinion, I think the idea of separating children from their families is absolutely reprehensible. And you have to think of the sole reason why, as you know, we've already previously talked about, why are they coming to this country? And it's to escape war, to escape poverty, you know, to escape, to escape um, you know, crime. And really, in essence, to escape corrupt governments. And really, in essence, if you think about the first immigrants, which wasn't Native Americans, when you think about the first immigrants that came to this country, um, which were Europeans, they were escaping, you know, a harsh government um, and the idea that this nation was founded to create this equal society where all men are created equal. Everybody has the opportunity to the American dream, whatever the heck that may be. Um, and so to deny children, to deny families that idea that our forefathers had goes against everything of goes against all the ideals of our nation, um, which I think is just very hypocritical. But we've we've seen America be hypocritical a lot um but anyway um the biden administration is only allowing unaccompanied children into the u.s so according to cbs news more than thirteen thousand unaccompanied migrant children are now in u.s custody and most of the times when we see them in u.s custody and i don't know if this has been done in the biden administration but i know under the trump administration most of the time when we see these children in custody they are being sexually assaulted. They're not being fed. They're not being treated correctly. So what good does it do to take all these to take all these children away from their families if you're not going to treat them right? Adding on to kind of what you said, Chelsea, um, while we were doing research for this podcast episode, I do remember reading about how there's like a limit. Like children are only supposed to be in these detention centers for up to 72 hours. Um but they're being in there for more than 100 hours. And the there's so many, like, policies that they have in place supposedly to protect these children that just aren't being met. And one of the reasons they said this is happening is, is because there's too many children coming in. There's just a huge influx of children. And about two-thirds of unaccompanied children caught at the border since October 1st of 2020 have been from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And Mexican children make up most of the remainder. Going back to what you said, Chelsea, about like why is it necessary to separate them from their families? I still don't understand it. Um, I don't, Janae, do you have anything to add? I think it's absolutely not necessary to separate these families. I think it's just ridiculous, and I definitely agree with Chelsea 100%. When Europeans came over, they were escaping religious persecution, crime, that type of thing. So how is it? that now it's people stopped at the border, border who are seeking asylum, like we mentioned early, from organized crime, corrupt governments, um, starvation, all these things. Why are they being not only stopped at the border, but then punished very cruelly by having their children taken away? And that's a whole other thing, what Chelsea brought up about the abuse that happens to these children. Not only are they abused, but there are actually several cases, which is not covered by the news, which is very shady, of children dying in these facilities or going missing. And um, it's just something that's not talked about enough. And it's, it's really sad. And continuing with this idea of families, I kind of want to talk about 
when it comes to these migrant families, not only like why they come here and what they're sacrificing, but I also kind of want to talk about what are they leaving behind? So oftentimes they're leaving behind members of their family as well. So as I mentioned before, my mom has been in this country for 27 years, but when she left, she left a four-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. She left her children behind and my siblings were raised by my grandparents and they are now 30 and 31 years old and my mom hasn't hugged her children in 27 years. So she made that decision because she knew that when she made the journey to the United States that she may not survive it and she did not have the heart to take her children with her on that journey. So she made the very difficult decision to leave her children behind and not only has she not been able to see her children in 27 years, she hasn't been able to see her parents in 27 years either. And um, one thing that really breaks her heart is that she wasn't able to be there when her parents died. My grandpa died of lung cancer in 2012, and my mom couldn't be there with him. She couldn't take care of him. And not even a year later, my grandma passed too, and she wasn't there. She couldn't go to their funeral she couldn't visit their grave. She couldn't mourn them properly and do the funeral rites she normally would have done if she were there. And that breaks her heart. And again, this is just her story. This is this is the story of my family, but it's not the only one. There are so many cases where people leave behind everything they know, their families, um, their loved ones, because, again, they want to make money and opportunities to help them. Um, like I mentioned earlier, my sister was only making $10 a week. If it wasn't for the fact that my mom was here in the U.S. earning money so that she could send her so that she could feed her children, my sister and her children probably would have died. So that's that sacrifice piece that not only are they sacrificing their lives and um, the possibility for trauma, but they're also leaving behind their families and their loved ones. And another thing that they're leaving behind um, is lands i mean it's the only place that they've ever known is their home country and there are sometimes you know cases where you have these lands that are passed down for generations and i mean what are you going to do about it you got to leave like i said sometimes people are driven out by gang members um sometimes they're they're targeted by corrupt government officials and sometimes you know they just don't have a choice to leave but to leave because they live in extreme poverty um and then another thing I kind of want to mention is some people are leaving behind careers. So people come here and they work on farms and factories or in construction, and they're doing all of this manual labor type work, you know, warehouse work, um, really hands-on stuff, mostly jobs that other people just don't find desirable or they're like, I wouldn't even do that even if it means I would die. These people are out here doing it. So that's a great um, topic that you brought up, Deborah. It's something that I want to bring attention to because, like you said, the jobs that they do take, um, they're very, they're, they're usually the jobs that nobody wants, let's be honest, and they're jobs that require a lot of work and definitely physical, a lot of physical exhaustion. So I want to talk specifically about the strawberry fields. Um, there was a video that came up, and I just couldn't believe that it was legal to have people work in these conditions. I mean, 
they were picking so many strawberries and then they had to run all the way to the truck. I mean, people were running like full speed and then had to come back. I mean, if we're being honest, it's, it's giving me slavery vibes. I don't know about anybody else, but like the way that they were working so hard in the fields and it just doesn't sit right with me. And I feel like definitely they're not paid enough. Yeah, I actually remember that when I was in middle school, my mom was actually working in a cornfield and it was it was in the summer then, but it was so hot and she would come home exhausted and it, it was really, really tough work. And it was it was so hot that my mom and like her coworkers, they would put their food on the hood of their car at the beginning of the day so that when it was lunchtime, their food was hot. And like, cause on top of everything, they didn't provide microwaves. So <laughs> that that was the only option if they wanted warm food when it was time for their lunch break. And I remember just seeing her, she was exhausted. And I, I begged her mom, find another job. This one is killing you. And I mean, fortunately my mom wasn't in that position for too long, but there are people who live their whole lives in a occupation like that. And like you, like you said, they're they're usually undesirable jobs they're the jobs nobody wants to do kind of going back um i was watching this documentary on netflix it's called immigration nation and there were cases where people would hire illegal immigrants to do you know construction work for them and then they wouldn't pay them and so that was something that was really upsetting for me and kind of that kind of kind of bring it back to the topic that we were talking about, which is what are they leaving behind? These people that are doing all these undesirable jobs in their countries, they are lawyers, doctors, engineers, teachers. Like they have their whole professions and careers in their countries. It's upsetting because you, just like how lawyers, doctors, teachers, engineers study and work and sacrifice to get their careers moving here, they did that in their home countries and then all of that effort was for nothing and now they're working in strawberry fields for little pay and killing themselves working um which kind of goes on to like the next topic which is comfort so they're they're leaving the comfort of knowing their country because in the same way where people fear moving to a new city because it's different imagine moving to a different country not knowing absolutely anything except the fact that you may have a better life and that's that's something that these these migrant families are constantly doing they are leaving what they know for the chance that what they don't know could be better for them and then also the fact that once they are here they know that their lives aren't valued i mean it's on the news the 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 way that they criminalize migrants the for example donald trump saying that they're rapists and stuff like that like they're criminalized and they know that but they still come because they want opportunities for themselves for their families they want money to support their loved ones so they give up the comfort of be they give up the comfort of being respected and they know they're going to come here they're going to be a minority and that they're going to face discrimination but they still do it because bottom line they do it because it is safer than staying in their countries and for an opportunity at a better life for them and or their loved one 
bottom line, that's why people immigrate to this country. Okay, so we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Chelsea brought up the fact that Biden was opening a facility in Texas. So I'm just going to go a little bit more in depth of why that's happening. A federal judge in Texas indefinitely blocked Joe Biden's administration from enforcing a 100-day deportation freeze. His name is Judge Drew Tempton, and he is a Trump-appointed judge, and he granted a preliminary injunction. So as we all remember during Biden's campaign, he talked a lot about um, reversing a lot of Trump's immigration policies. So he campaigned on a 100-day deportation freeze as a part of his review of immigration policies and enforcement. So like I just said, he has sought to turn the page from Trump's aggressive crackdown on immigration. This pause was intended to allow ICE to overhaul its enforcement priorities amid intense criticism from Democrats that President Donald Trump had used the agency to terrorize immigrants who had not committed violent or other serious crimes. So we all remember that when Trump took office in 2017, he ordered several immigration-related moves, including a ban on travel from certain Muslim-majority countries that unleashed chaos and protests at the U.S. airports. His administration separated more than 3,000 migrant children from their parents during a 2018 border crackdown known as the Zero Tolerance Policy. So um, Biden's Justice Department actually formally rescinded that on Tuesday. A lot of people are really upset with Biden, but what they don't understand is that he tried to have a 100-day deportation freeze like he promised us, but the federal judge blocked it. The president has proposed a comprehensive immigration bill that would offer a pathway to citizenship for roughly 11 million people who are living in the United States illegally. So while we're talking about the path to citizenship, I will now give it off to Deborah to talk a little bit more in depth about that. Yeah, so part of that is a path to citizenship for DREAMers. And last Thursday, March 19th, um, all House Democrats joined by nine Republicans voted to approve the American Dream and Promise Act. So this proposal would allow more than 2.3 million dreamers or unauthorized immigrants who came to the U.S. as minors, as well as beneficiaries of certain temporary humanitarian programs to gain permanent legal status and eventually U.S. citizenship. That same day, the Democratic-led House also passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which would grant legal status to hundreds of thousands of farm workers living in the U.S. without authorization. If signed into law, the American Dream and Promise Act would make recipients of the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, and other undocumented immigrants brought to the country before age 18 eligible to apply for a 10-year period of conditional permanent residence. And these would-be applicants would be eligible to apply for a permanent residence if they earned a college degree or enrolled in a bachelor's program for two years, um, if they served in the military for at least two years, or if they worked in the U.S. for a three-year period. And more than 300,000 immigrants living in the U.S. with temporary protected status and deferred enforced departure to provisional forms of humanitarian relief would automatically be eligible to apply for permanent residency under the bill if they meet the eligibility rules, which include having lived in the U.S. for at least three years. And um, the DREAM Act that passed by the House on Thursday would also allow children of temporary U.S. work visa holders trapped in the backlogged employment-based green card process to adjust their status. So I personally, I'm 
kind of excited for this because I have friends who are DACA recipients. I know a lot of people who are DACA recipients. Um, and I, I'm, I really hope that, that this is something that is useful for a lot of people um, and that it's not just, you know, more empty promises. Because I feel like, that, unfortunately, that's something that we get from the government a lot is empty promises. Um, we're going to offer this and then we don't see results. So hopefully this is something where we're seeing, you know, DACA recipients and people with TPS and deferred enforced departure actually, you know, receiving, you know, residency. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the immigrants that nobody talks about. These are specifically black immigrants, and it's basically the same systematic racism that we experience from police is also woven through our immigration system. So racism impacts black immigrants the hardest in a form of unusual and cruel punishments. In the midst of the pandemic, dozens of families continue to be locked up and torn apart by ICE. There are there have been a few horrified headlines, but one specific aspect of family detention in 2020 has been greatly underreported. And that is the fact that almost half of the families currently locked up in ICE are Haitian. From January to March this year, 29% of families detained at the Carnes County Residential Center were Haitian, according to tracking by the Refuge and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. But as the COVID-19 pandemic progressed and some families were released by ICE, the share of Haitian families in detention increased to an alarming 44% of the total. In fact, the U.S. has consistently detained more Haitian families in 2020 than any other nationality. Not only are Haitian families being detained more often, but ICE also makes it more difficult for them to be released. Take the bomb system, for example. This allows immigrants in detention to be, to be released if they pay ICE thousands of dollars. The RAICES has dedicated a fund to help immigrants pay these bonds so that they don't have to be locked up while an immigration judge decides their case. But when the RAICES looked through data on bonds, it was discovered that Haitian immigrants pay much higher bonds than any other immigrants in detention. Between June 2018 and June 2020, the average bond paid by the RAICES was $10,000. But the bonds paid for Haitian immigrants by the RAICES averaged $16,000, 54% higher than any other immigrants. So basically, black immigrants stay in ICE jails longer because of the massive disparity in their bonds. Kind of going back to this talk, when we talk about immigration, it is so often around like the countries of Latin America. Um, but there are other countries that immigrate to the United States as well. It's not just them. Um, I am guilty of this. I will admit it just because as a Latina, that's I feel like I have that perspective in mind because um, these, these are my people. I feel like more of a personal connection to them. But it is really important to acknowledge the fact that it's not just Latin America. It's several different countries from around the world not just south of the border that are immigrating to this country and being treated unfairly and we have reached pretty long for this episode so we're kind of kind of bring it to the end but before we go i do want to mention um immigration nation docuseries on netflix i mentioned it previously in this podcast episode but across six hours this um short docuseries follows u.s immigration and customs enforcement or ice officers on raids at detention centers and attempting to integrate with local law enforcement and it shows immigrants in detention centers and 
immigrant veterans living in exile after deportation and immigrant bodies found at the border and just a whole lot of other issues around the topic of immigration. And what I really like about it is that it, it shows both sides of the story. It shows it from ICE's perspective, what they think they're doing, and then it also shows the migrant families, what they're going through, their stories. So I found it really powerful myself. Um, it is um, really heart-wrenching. I will say that. it is. I definitely cried every episode. Um, so it is not for the, the weak-hearted, but it is definitely a very insightful documentary. So if you haven't seen it and you're interested in learning more, I definitely, definitely recommend that you check that out. That being said, that brings us to the end of this episode. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening or whatever time it is when you're listening to this and stay safe out there.